The following audio is from Jacobswell Church. For more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Lord, as we uh, look back to 2016, we are reminded of not only how you were faithful, but abundantly gracious to us, Lord. How you have carried us through good times and hard times, individually, how you have provided for us as a body, a church building. We are so thankful, Lord. How you have provided for us a church community to love and care for one another. How you provided our breath every day that we can live and sing your glory. Lord, pray as we turn to your word this morning that we continue to feast on your grace this year, Lord, that our hearts would swell, that they would grow with the knowledge of your great love for us in Christ, and that we would live that out this year in 2017. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, Happy New Year. I'm curious how many of you made it to midnight Pastor Chad asked, but I couldn't see how many of you. Okay, all right, good. Wow, quite a few. All right. People actually over 40 that stayed up till midnight. I am impressed. Way to go. I'm curious how many of you went to bed before 10. Wow, all right. Those are the early birds. Okay. How many of you did not even realize that it was New Year's Eve? Anybody? Okay, there are a few of us, right? Was just so distracted to even realize. I kind of woke up this morning, I was like, oh, today's New Year's, I forgot. I mean, I, I knew like a few days ago, but I forgot, and it came back, and just distracted with sermon prep and stuff like that, but Happy New Year's. Um, I think for all of us, for most of us, maybe this is a stereotype, I think most of us set New Year's resolutions. I think a lot of us deny the fact that we set New Year's resolutions, but I think secretly inside, most of us set New Year's resolutions. And the reason that we do this is because we know that there is a better version of us yet to come. Because we know there are areas in our life where we need to grow, where we need to develop. And so we set New Year's resolutions. Last year, the Nielsen Group, who is a reliable survey company, uh, conducted a survey about the top most popular New Year's resolutions for 2016. And I want to read you the top four. And I'm curious if any of these are your New Year's resolutions. Number four, 25% of the people said they had made a resolution to spend less and save more. 28% made a resolution to enjoy life to the fullest. 32% made a resolution to lose weight. And the number one resolution, 37% of people made a resolution to stay fit and healthy. Now, none of these resolutions are surprising, are they? Um, And none of these are wrong. But what struck me about these resolutions, and really New Year's resolutions in general, is that New Year's resolutions are typically very self-focused. They're focused on improving ourselves for the sake of ourselves. And again, none of these are wrong. But when this is all that our goals are, if this is all that our resolutions are, then there is something wrong. Today's passage challenges us to add a selfless goal to our New Year's resolution, a goal for us both individually but also collectively as a church, a goal which mirrors the love of God, and it is a goal to live mercy. 
Now, what if Jacob's Well Church made this New Year's resolution and by the grace of God grew in mercy? How would it affect the community that we are in? Not just by giving our monies, but by giving our very lives. How would it affect us here as a church, but also how would it affect Green Bay? Would the friendless become not so lonely? Would the hurting become more comforted? Would the outcast be brought in? Well, today we return to the book of Acts, and we see that mercy is such a high priority for the church of Jesus Christ that in order to do it well, they have established a new position in the church. And the position is called deacon. And as we will see, this position of deacon is not only to show mercy, but also to encourage all the members of Christ's church to live lives of mercy. If you would please open up to Acts chapter 6. It is page 914 in the Red Bible and page 1184 in the Children's Bible. Today, I'm so excited to return back to the book of Acts. It's kind of an exciting, fast-paced book as you're reading the early history of the church. And so we stopped uh, preaching on Acts back in mid-November when we made the move here. And so I want to just give you a brief recap. The book of Acts starts with the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension into heaven. And Jesus gives a great commission. And Acts 1.8 is not only the theme verse of the entire book of Acts, but it's actually an outline for the entire books of, of Acts. In Acts 1.8, Jesus says to his disciples, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so the rest of the book of Acts is really the unfolding of that verse, of verse 8. And so we see in Acts chapter 2, just as Jesus promised, the Holy Spirit comes in power. And it comes during the Jewish feast of Pentecost. Now this Jewish feast of Pentecost had Jews coming in from all over the known world to come and celebrate this feast. And during this feast, the power of God through the Holy Spirit comes on these people in power in order that the gospel might be proclaimed and people can hear it in every language. And so people are coming from all over the world with all these different languages, and they're hearing the good news of Jesus Christ, and they are trusting and believing in Christ, and then they are going back out into the world, into their countries, to tell others the good news of Jesus. Over the next few chapters, we read of how new believers, empowered by the Holy Spirit, devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to evangelism, and ask also to the care of one another. And as the result of this, there is this unexplainable, from a historical perspective, unexplainable, fantastic growth in the church in which tens of thousands of people come to faith in Christ in the matter of days and weeks. In Acts chapter 5, which is the passage just before today's passage, we read about how the Jewish religious leaders are getting extremely frustrated and angry and jealous because the apostles are teaching about Jesus and hordes of people are going and converting to Christianity. And they warn them to no longer preach in the name of Jesus. And then in chapter 5, it ends like this, and you can look along with me. In chapter 5, verse 41, it says, Then they, the apostles, left the presence of the council, the council that had just beaten them and warned them to never speak again in the name of Jesus, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor 
for the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease, even though they were beaten, even though they were warned, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. And so the church continues to grow and grow and grow and grow. And with any type of growth, there is significant growth pains. And that's what we get to today in Acts chapter 6, the growth pains of the early church. Now we're going to read the entire chapter, but I want to just start with the first six verses. So let's read together Acts 6, verse 1 through 7. It says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Then they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. In this passage, we will see that the apostles, guided by the Holy Spirit, institute a new office in the church, the office of deacon. And the purpose of this was to ensure proper attention is given to those that are in need, both physically and spiritually. Now, I know that you probably come to church and you're not sitting there saying, oh, I hope that the sermon today is about church government. But church government is an extremely important aspect of the church, and it's extremely important ministry of the church. And we believe that the Bible establishes two offices in the church. One office is elder, and sometimes it's described in the Bible as an overseer or as a bishop, and this is referring to different aspects of the duties of an elder. But then there is also the office of deacon, which we'll learn a lot about in today's passage. And so we're going to dig deep into this, and we're going to look and see what are the duties of deacons. And what we'll see is that the duties of deacons are to provide the needs of the church, to protect the elders of the church, and to proclaim the Savior of the church. And so we're going to look at those three things in that order. First, we see that one of the duties of a deacon is to provide the needs of the church. Now remember, in the book of Acts, the church is growing extremely rapidly. And that's what the book of Acts is recording. But it's also telling us about the internal workings of the church, how the church works together to accomplish the mission of God. In Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 4, we read about how this new community called the church is selling all of their goods and they're laying the proceeds at the feet of the apostles and that the apostles are distributing the proceeds to all who have needs. And it says, quote, not a needy person, there is not a needy person among them. Now, the most needy people of that time would have been widows and orphans. 
And widows and orphans would have been the neediest people of that time because they would have had no father or no husband to provide for their basic needs. And so the church had stepped in to provide for the widows and orphans, as we're told throughout Scripture that we were to care for widows and orphans. But when we get to Acts chapter 6, we see there is a problem. Verse 1, let's read again. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number... A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The Hellenists. What are Hellenists? Hellenists are Greek-speaking Jews that lived outside of Palestine, that lived outside of Israel, if you will. And the Hellenists had a complaint that their widows were being neglected. And so it seemed as if in the enormity of the task of caring for widows in the church, preferential treatment was being given to the Palestinian Christians. Verse 2, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. What the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles do with this complaint is they form what we call a general assembly. They form this general assembly in order to address the complaint, to discuss it and address it. And this is a common thing that the church does throughout the Bible. We actually see later in Acts chapter 15 that there is a question whether that Gentile Christians need to be circumcised. And so they form together this general assembly at Jerusalem to discuss the matter. And so churches don't, don't operate autonomously uh, apart from one another, but they gather collectively to discuss these big theological issues and to present, uh, present a way of moving forward with it. And so here in this case, the disciples gather together, the apostles gather together both themselves but also other disciples to discuss and to address this complaint amongst the Hellenists that their widows were being neglected. And as a result of this meeting, guided by the Holy Spirit, they determined to appoint men for the task of what they say here, serving tables. Now we'll talk more about their rationale and the next main point of why they appointed these table servers. But this verb serving is the Greek word diakoneo, which is the verbal form of the noun, which is diakonos, which is which we get the word deacon. And the word deacon literally means a servant, a waiter, one who serves food and drink. Deacons are those that are assigned in the church to care for the needy and given authority to distribute the money of the church to those who have need. And so what this general assembly here directs them to do is to pick out seven men of good repute and full of the spirit and wisdom to oversee the distribution of funds to those in need. And we read here in verse 5, it says, And what they said pleased the whole gathering, And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now what is so interesting about this list of men chosen to be the first deacons of the church is that all of them were Hellenists. None of them were from Palestine. The names indicate that they were Hellenistic Jews and Hellenistic Christians. 
And this is so interesting because what happens next is that they present these men to the apostles. They lay their hands on them and they pray for them, meaning that they are ordaining them and approving the selection. And what is so cool about this is there's this racism that starts to to spur up in the church as the Hellenistic widows are being neglected. And as a reaction to it, what happens is they, 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 uh, they elect all Hellenistic men to be deacons, which means that the Palestinians are now entrusting their finances and their widows and their orphans to the Hellenists that are overseeing the finances of the church. And so here, God is both addressing racism and favoritism in the church, but also creating an office and a structure in the church to ensure that people in the church that are in need are cared for, that people do not fall through the cracks. Now, I know it is a common trend in America to to minimize the importance of church government and church structure. There's idealistic people out there like me who want everything to be organic, right? Like, why doesn't all this just happen organically? And it sounds so wonderful, right? Like, like we should just care for people organically. Like, no one should have need because we all just see it and we, we flock to it, right? And we take care of all of their needs. But I think we know how this goes, especially as the church grows, that people slip through the cracks, that there are unseen people, that we are, that we are busy people, that we are a selfish people, that, that maybe we see someone in need, but we also assume that someone else is taking care of them, right? That happens quite a bit. And so there is a need of intentionality in the church and a need for structure in the church. And so God assigns elders and deacons to ensure that as much as possible, that people do not slip through the cracks, that they're not neglected, And that the resources of the church are not abused, but distributed wisely and strategically. Let me give you this example. Currently at Jacob's Well Church, we have a mercy ministry. This is kind of the beginning of us moving towards ordaining deacons, which hopefully will happen this year sometime. Would be awesome. Uh, That's a goal I think we'll set for 2017 to ordain some deacons, which would be wonderful. But we have this mercy ministry team uh, composed of several men, and there's also several women in training for this mercy ministry team. And they are people who are secretly meeting the needs of the church. Pastor Chad actually leads this group. How often do you all meet? Once a month or so. And they get together and they talk about the needs of the church. And what's so cool is you don't know a lot of these things that are going on. But over the past year, they have provided finances for necessities like rent and mortgage and medication and food. They provided education and mentorship for those who need to be walked alongside of in areas like budgeting and marriage. They provided tough love to those who maybe feel entitled to get money from the church for wants instead of needs. They provided unexpected care for the lonely. You know, one of the cool stories this year was, was the, the Mercy Ministry team decided to put together these care baskets uh, during the Christmas season and give it to people that they had helped over the year. And they had given these care baskets to these folks, and some of them responded absolutely flabbergasted. One was actually a, a living community here in town, I don't want to give too much information, but that we were engaging with, that they were engaging with to try to improve the conditions of that living facility, and they gave one of these gift baskets, and the people were just blown away that the church was not only trying to target them and transform what was happening there, but that we actually cared for them and loved them. And so you see this Mercy Ministry team has been so critical to improving the intentionality and quality of the mercy ministry of our church. In the book of Church Order, 
which is uh, a book that we have in our denomination, which kind of lays out how the church should be structured and run as informed by Scripture. It starts out by, by acknowledging that Christ is the head of the church, but that also Christ has appointed officers to the church, the officers of elders and deacons. And as the Book of Church Order describes deacons, it describes it in such a beautiful and wonderful way that I really appreciate. And as we read it, I have a couple sections up here that we're going to read together, but as I read it, I would encourage you not only to think about those who maybe have these attributes that you would want to nominate to be an, a deacon, but also consider what this means for yourself, because I think these are all attributes that all of us should aspire to. And so in nine one of our book of church order, it says this, the office of deacon is set forth in the scripture as an ordinary and perpetual in the church, meaning it goes on forever. The office is one of sympathy and service. I love that line, sympathy and service. After the example of the Lord Jesus, it expresses also the communion of the saints. It shows that we are one body caring for one another, especially in their, well, go back one more especially in their helping one another in times of need. Okay, go ahead, next slide. It is the duty of the deacons to minister to those who are in need, to the sick, to the friendless, and to any who may be in distress. Do you know anyone in that boat this morning? Maybe that's you. It is their duty also to develop the grace of liberality in the members of the church. In other words, this diaconal concern, this mercy ministry doesn't just belong to the deacons, but it belongs to all of us, and they're to encourage us in that. To devise effective methods of collecting the gifts of the people. A portion of our budget goes to the mercy ministry team, to the diaconal fund. We also collected money on Christmas Eve that goes to help those that are in need. And to distribute these gifts among the objects to which they are contributed. And then it gives the qualifications for deacons. It says, to the office of deacon, which is spiritual nature, shall be chosen men of spiritual character, honest repute, exemplary lives, brotherly spirit, warm sympathies, and sound judgment. These are the qualifications that are consistent with what we see here in Acts chapter 6, but what we also see in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 3. And as we look at these, we are reminded that this is not only certain attributes that should be for deacons in the church, but for all of us in the church. And so as we open up to deacon and elder nominations, if you are a member here, we would ask that you take this seriously. You know, many years, I I probably shouldn't say this, uh, but many years what happens is that nobody comes and offers any names to me. And so I will, I, will, I will nudge people. I'll say, hey, is there anyone that you're thinking about that would, that would maybe be a good elder, a good deacon? They're like, yeah, but I'm sure someone else has nominated them. I'm like, no, they haven't. Like, please go and talk to them. And so take this seriously as a member of Jake's Well Church to nominate those that fit these qualifications and these characteristics, but also aspire to these attributes yourself. And so the first duty of a deacon, which this is the longest point, is to provide for the needs of the church, physically and emotionally and relationally and also spiritually. And they are also to encourage all of us to do the same. The second duty of deacons is to protect the elders of the church. Look at verse 2 with me. It says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now at first... 
this pronouncement might seem a bit arrogant, right? It might seem as if the apostles are saying, we're too good to serve tables or we're too good to help out those people in need. But when we read closely, what we understand is that the apostles are limiting themselves, not because they think too much of themselves or because they think too little of those in need. Rather, the apostles limit themselves because they believe that the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ is so important that it cannot be watered down, that it should not be neglected. And they recognize that they are finite people, that they're limited in their time and their energy, and they cannot do all these things well. They recognize that the priority and the duty of the apostles should be the preaching of the word of God. And they understand that if it involves them in taking care of the daily distribution of the food, that the proclamation of God's word would suffer tremendously. Verse 3 continues. It says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to, and then listen closely, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. Now in this passage, those that are being devoted to the ministry of the word of God and prayer are apostles. Maybe some disciples, it's kind of unclear, but definitely the apostles. And while the elders of the church today are certainly not apostles, um, apostles are people who walked with Jesus, were disciples with Jesus, one of the 12. Apostle Paul is also a part of that as well, Matthias. And so those are the apostles. They write scripture. The elders are not apostles. But the apostles are a form that we see later in elders, that many of the responsibilities overlap one another. As we start to read throughout the book of Acts, what we're going to see is that as churches are being planted throughout the world, the apostles start to appoint elders in the church. And the elders are really giving a lot of the same duties that apostles are, which are to teach the word of God, to preach the word of God, and to pray for the purposes of God. And so there is this overlap. And what we see in Acts, I'm sorry, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, is there is this complementarianism between elders and deacons in which they support one another. They each have a distinct role, which is critical to the purity of the church, but they have to fulfill it in the way that God has called them to. You know, the distinctions of these responsibilities sometimes get very blurred. There are many churches and many denominations that have wandered away from the ministry of the truth of God's word because well-intentioned elders and well-intentioned pastors got so caught up in caring for those in need, those that have physical needs, that they neglected the, the learning and the praying and the teaching of the word of God. Now what's so cool in this passage is we see the fruit of this new office. We see the fruit of the distinctions made between elder and deacon. Look at verse 7 with me. It says, And the word of God continued to increase. This is a direct result of what they had done in establishing deacons. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Because of the institution of deacons, who primarily proclaimed the gospel through caring and physical needs of the church, the apostles were able to devote themselves to the teaching and the preaching of God's word. And because of this ministry, 
of both word and deed from these two groups of people. The gospel was bearing so much fruit that even Jewish priests were becoming Christians. This week, I was trying to think of an illustration uh, to describe the relationship and the distinction between elders and deacons. And the illustration I thought of was a football illustration. I know that's surprising to you if you know me, right? So I, I try to limit myself to one sports illustration a week. And so this is my sports illustration for the week. And uh, I'll tell you this illustration is not perfect, but I think it's helpful for me. Um, in football, you have linemen, right? And then you have backfield. And I think if you think of it this way, that, that deacons are kind of like linemen, right? They take care of the immediate needs that kind of come forward, but they also protect the backfield in order to carry the ball forward. And the ball being the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the deacons, who are this offensive line, take care of physical needs, but it does not mean that they don't ever touch the ball, right? They have to hike it. They have to recover fumbles. They have to do things like that. And, and the running backs, whose primary duty is to move the ball down the field, they also have to block. If they don't do that, then that's bad. But together, they have this achieved goal of moving the ball down the field. Now, what happens if they get their responsibilities mixed up? What happens if the backfield becomes the blockers and the blockers become the backfield? What happens? Well, then the team just becomes the Cleveland Browns, right? I mean, that's what happens. And none of us wants the church to become the Cleveland Browns. And so, in the same way, elders and deacons have distinct roles, but for a common goal, a goal of extending Christ's kingdom through the ministry of word and prayer and the ministry of mercy. As an elder of Jacob's Well Church, you know, we started much like the book of Acts. We started out just a collection of elders that were handling both the elder responsibilities, but also the deacon responsibilities. And as we've grown by God's grace, we had people coming and joining this mercy ministry. And I have to tell you that I'm so extremely thankful for this. That when there is a call on Saturday afternoon, when I'm deep in the sermon prep and there's someone at Walmart who needs a gift card, that I don't have to shut everything down to go and take care of them. But that we have people that we can call and say, would you go and help this person? I'm so thankful for our mercy ministry team because it has improved the quality of the ministry of God's word, but also the quality of the elders' lives as they're able to be at home with their families more and not necessarily taking care of all of these needs. And so deacons provide for the needs of the church, physically, emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. Deacons protect the elders of the church so that they can focus on their primary duty of word and prayer. And finally, deacons proclaim the Savior of the church. Just because the deacons are tasked with caring for people's physical needs, it does not mean that they do not care about the people's greatest need. They know that the greatest need that people have, whether they are hungry or thirsty, whether they need money for food or for rent, they know that the person's greatest need is Christ. Verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of priests became obedient to the faith, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it is called, 
and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. In other words, let me just kind of recap. Stephen was so filled with the Holy Spirit that Jews from all over the known world were trying to argue with him, but they just looked silly. And so they're getting desperate here because they can't argue with this new thing called Christianity. They cannot argue with the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the miraculous things that are happening. And even some of their own priests are converting to Christianity. And so there is desperation. And that's what we see as we move forward. Verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Notice they aren't offended by Stephen doing good deeds. They're offended by his speaking, by his proclamation of the gospel. Verse 12, And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council, which sounds eerily like Jesus. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place. And we'll change the customs that Moses delivered us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, we don't know exactly what Stephen said that offended them. Um, but we know he said something because they're offended. And we get a clue at what Stephen said because of the accusations that were made. You see, these false witnesses were drummed up, and they probably took a sum of what Stephen did, said, and they twisted it just a little bit in order to bring accusation against him. And knowing that Stephen is a follower of Jesus, a lover of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, a student of Jesus, it is not too much of a stretch to imagine that he was actually giving them the teachings of Jesus. You see, Jesus was accused of many of the same things. If you remember when Jesus stood before Caiaphas in the council in Matthew 26, Jesus is accused of saying, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. That was the accusation that Jesus said this, that Jesus said, I can destroy this temple and rebuild it in three days. The problem is Jesus never said that. Jesus did prophesy that there would be the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, but on a separate occasion after cleansing out the temple, Jesus said to them, destroy this temple. He does not say, I will destroy this temple. He says, you all destroy this temple, and in three days, I will rise it up. And then it goes on to say, the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he, Jesus, was speaking about the temple of his body. And so you see the same accusations that were lobbed at Jesus. The same way that Jesus' words are twisted, Stephen's words were as well. And they did this because they were angry, because they were disturbed that this Jesus movement was growing. And so they made this accusation that Stephen said that Jesus would destroy the temple. But the second accusation was that Jesus was changing Old Testament custom, customs. Look at verse 14 with me again. It says, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Again, there is partial truth or skewed truth to convict Stephen. If you remember when Christ first came, he had the same accusations against him. 
And yet his response was that he did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but that he has come to fulfill them. And so you see, Stephen was most likely preaching these words of Jesus, that the Jewish practices, many of them could cease because Jesus was not changing the customs of Moses, but Jesus was fulfilling the customs of Moses. And so you can imagine what Jews must have been thinking when Stephen was coming to them and preaching the gospel from the Old Testament and saying to them, you no longer need to do animal sacrifices for your sin because the great sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ has come. And so you no longer need to do animal sacrifices. Not only that, but there is no more need for priests. There is no more need for your livelihood. Can you imagine how angry this would have made them? But he would have said, listen, our great high priest has come. Our the intermediary between sinners and God has come. It is Jesus. He is our great high priest. We no longer need priests. And he would maybe even say there is no more need for a temple. Because Jesus' body, the church, has become the temple of the living God. And so the Jewish leaders were offended by these deacons that were proclaiming the good news of the gospel. But they boldly and unwaveringly proclaimed the gospel because they knew it was their greatest need. Several years ago, I got strep throat and I went to the hospital and they gave me some medication just to ease the pain. But they also gave me medication to kill the strep throat or whatever virus that is. And what was so important is that they gave me both. You see, if they just gave me the medicine to, to help my physical pain, then the disease would have continued on for a lot longer. But they treated both of them. They treated the deeper problem. Friends, as we seek out to live mercy this year, as we maybe give food to the hungry, as we give companionship to the lonely, or money to the poor, as we give these things, we must also give them the good news of Jesus. Because to take care of their physical bodies is not to take care of their greatest need. It is certainly important, but we must look at their greatest need and show them the greatest mercy of all. In 2017, we must not only address people's physical needs and emotional needs and relational needs, we must address their spiritual needs and eternal needs. We must share the good news of a Savior. And so, as we look at the duties of deacons, we see that deacons provide the needs of the church the physical needs, spiritual needs, emotional needs, relational dreams, and they encourage us to do the same. That deacons provide, that protect, sorry, deacons protect the elders of the church, that they might commit themselves to the proclamation of the word and prayer. And that deacons proclaim the Savior of the church, knowing that this is people's greatest need. Let me end with this. When Trish and I were first married, we didn't have much money like most newlyweds. Um, we lived in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. I had just graduated college. Trisha was in her last semester of student teaching at college. And, uh, and we actually lived in the basement of a grandma's house. We had to share a bathroom with her upstairs. I think we paid like $250 a month, something like that. Um, we didn't have a lot of money. I was substitute teaching. Sometimes I would teach every day. Sometimes I wouldn't teach for a week. And so money was kind of hit or miss. Well, we were part of a church at that time that we loved. And the church started up a mercy ministry in which they were repairing people's vehicles who couldn't afford to get them repaired anywhere else. And so I took my truck in there, which was broken down, and they mercifully fixed the truck so that I could now go back to work and provide for my family. 
You know, as I think back about what that church did for me, I doubt that any of those people in that garage were labeled deacons. I doubt any of those were ordained as deacons. And yet they had been so transformed by the mercy of God that they felt the need to show mercy to others. And they did it in the skill set that God had given to them. Galatians 6, 9 through 10 says, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Friends, would you make this one of your New Year's resolutions? To be mercy to someone. To befriend a friendless person. Could that be a New Year's resolution? You know, we all have different skill sets. I cannot fix a car to save my life, but other people can. Maybe your skill set is you can take care of children for a single mom. Maybe your skill set is you have a strong back and strong legs and you can help move people. Maybe your skill set is that you can cook and provide for people that are in times of desperation. There are many ways to show mercy. I pray that we would grow in mercy this year, not to earn the favor of God, but because in Christ we have received the overwhelming mercy of God at the cross. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your mercy. Thank you so much for your mercy that drew us into relationship with you. God, we thank you that we now get to be bearers of mercy as those who have received mercy. Lord, I know that you have given us all various talents and various giftings, and I'm so thankful for that, Lord. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to understand the ways that you have gifted us, that we might not hoard those gifts to ourselves, but that we might share them generously and liberally with those who are in need, that we may be a church of mercy towards one another and towards those in Green Bay and beyond. Lord, as we turn to your table, we are so thankful for the sacrifice of Christ. We are so thankful for your great act of mercy on our behalf to reconcile us to you. And so, Lord, I pray that as we take these elements, that we would be nourished in this call to ministry, this call to mercy, this call to caring and loving those around us. God, pray that we would not be people that are sitting on the sidelines, but that are engaged in the game, showing the mercy to others that you have shown to us in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.